You're listening to ReachMD, and this is COVID-19 on the front lines. The following episode has been brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians. Chest is an internationally trusted source for clinical updates and advancing patient care across the landscape of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. With clinician members at the center of this pandemic, we are closely monitoring COVID-19 and regularly making resources available to help you navigate the challenges of this public health crisis. So welcome Dr. Renee Jablonski from the University of Chicago and Dr. Martha Billings from the University of Washington. I want to, on behalf of CHESS, thank both of you for taking the time to share your experiences navigating this health crisis. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the invitation to speak. So my first question for both of you is, what does your transition to telemedicine look like? Um, well, I'll, I will reflect on our Seattle experience because we um, we were at the start of the pandemic, so we probably had a slower transition than other facilities. Um, first, we just were trying to keep people with possible COVID-19 um, from coming into clinic uh, and less absolutely necessary. Um, and then we gradually realized that, you know, these patients are at the highest risk um, because they have underlying lung disease by and large. Um, and given the public health recommendations that were emerging, we gradually sought to uh, obtain alternative care for them, and which was still providing the care they needed, but without having them come into clinic. Um, and so we did not, unfortunately, have telemedicine already in our clinic um, because we're a public health hospital. So we we gradually switched these from inpatient in clinic visits to uh, telephone visits, and that's kind of where we're at now, um, with the hope that we can rapidly uh, obtain telemedicine credentialing and roll that out, but with the limitation of our patient population not really having um, access necessarily to, uh, you know, the web and also having language barriers, which uh, do make it challenging. And many others are homeless or marginally housed. So those are issues we've been grappling with. Great, thanks. And Dr. Jablonski, do you want to add to that from your own perspective? Yeah, I think that we, uh, myself and my colleagues out here in Chicago have been in communication with a lot of our partners out on the West Coast, and we've been trying to learn from some of their experiences. So in our clinic, we've tried to be more proactive about postponing routine follow-up visits to minimize the risk of bringing patients with chronic lung disease um, into a setting where they could potentially be exposed. And we also have been struggling to transition to telephone encounters uh, as our system was not set up to do so in a seamless fashion um, at the onset of this crisis. Um, we've been fortunate enough to get some guidance from our leadership, uh, and we have been working closely with EPIC to build in appropriate billing codes for the visits. So right now, we're transitioning everyone possible to doing telephone visits um, that we're documenting in the medical record, um, including documenting that we obtained consent to do the telephone visit and that we confirmed who the patient was. 
um, and that this is done in a secure location. And then using um, the billing codes 99421, 99422 or 99423, depending on the amount of time that we spend on the phone call. And this is at least allowing us to provide some degree of continuity of care for our patients uh, in whom we don't want to bring in for a face-to-face -face visit. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We were, we're still gradually transitioning, and so we belatedly added those uh, codes and are learning about those necessary documentation and steps. But uh, the beginning, we just documented in, the, in, in Epic, but without um, without any charge capture. So, um, you know, I think we're all going to be facing challenges ahead as we, you know, we're still trying to provide care, but we might not be able to to capture the the time spent and the effort. But we're our foremost goal is to make sure the patients get the care they need, get their refills, um, and we're also working to postpone any screening tests they might have scheduled, like uh, you know, low dose CT scans, pulmonary function tests, um, just to avoid them again, either spreading or contracting uh, the virus while they're just getting a routine screen. Um, and then basically keeping them as much as possible at home and away from other people. So asking if they have relatives or someone who can go and pick up their medications and things like that. Yeah, I think the postponing of the routine the routine testing is really important. We've shut down our PFT lab to allow the respiratory therapy staff to be deployed to other parts of the hospital. And I think that minimizing the face-to-face -face visits in clinic also allows us as the providers to minimize our risk of exposure so that we can be present as the number of patients that we need to care for grows. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of our providers are we're anticipating being pulled into the ICU. And we, yeah, we want to keep our workforce healthy. So avoiding inadvertently them getting exposed is also key. Now, knowing that both of your clinics not might not be 100% completely remote at this point and seeing your patients, some of your patients might show up to clinic um, and present um, with symptoms of in line with COVID-19. How are you triaging these these patients. Dr. Billings, would you like to start? Sure. Um, we did have that, um, unfortunately, occur. We, um, what we did at the very beginning was uh, was call and make sure they weren't symptomatic when we did our reminder calls. Um, but unfortunately, we had one patient who, for some reason, still came in or she had just gotten symptoms um, and she had fevers and worsening cough. Um, and so uh, what we did rapidly was get her in a mask um, and get her directly back to a room to minimize exposure to the other staff and other patients. Um, and then we have to, uh, transitioned to using droplet precautions. Um, so we, since we do not have airborne uh, rooms in our clinic space, so we uh, isolated the patient and then we've been trying to communicate with them uh, without being exposed ourselves. This patient unfortunately did not speak English, so we had to have an interpreter um, and that was also challenging. But so isolating them in the room, ideally you can call them on the phone, maybe their cell phone or the uh, clinic room phone to get additional history to see if they really do need to be ruled out for COVID. Um, and then if you do go in the room using droplet precautions with appropriately donning and doffing um, to minimize staff exposure. And we really limited the staff that went in with that patient. 
uh, to avoid anyone else being exposed. But this is a situation that we'd all together like to avoid. This patient had to be admitted to the hospital, so maybe that was appropriate instead of using the emergency room. But um, in general, I would try to have these patients stay home unless they're experiencing significant symptoms. I think that's great advice, and I think it just speaks to our need to be forward-thinking with how we reach out to some of our patients who are at the margins by virtue of not speaking English or their socioeconomic status and thinking of how we might better get the message to them to take appropriate precautions before coming in to their visit. I know the uh, medical center at which I work is setting up or has set up a triage phone line for patients who have symptoms. Um, as well as a direct clinic and pathway for testing for patients to be able to bypass um, the pulmonary clinic if they have questions or concerns. But I think we still aren't doing a great job reaching people who aren't facile with technology or English, speaking English as their primary language. Yes, and this was before, but yes, I agree. Ideally, um, you would have a COVID sort of focus clinic where you could have them safely tested and everyone has the proper gear. We do have a telemedicine service for COVID-related symptoms that people can call. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still the same problem remains with the people that don't have the technology access and don't, don't speak or understand English um, to access these things. And we've tried to disseminate information in multiple languages um, on our postings. Um, but uh, most of the, the notifications that go through um, Epic and uh, texting and such like that, I think, are unfortunately all in, in English, maybe in Spanish, but uh, not in, in the many, many other languages that our patients speak. So in addition to taking care of symptomatic patients, uh, one issue that has come up personally in my clinic recently has been uh, how we deal with potentially symptomatic or infected staff members in clinic. Dr. Billings, have you had any experience with that in Seattle? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we had a provider um, who developed a fever after clinic. Um, so we have to since quarantined that person. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's allergy season. So people have a variety of symptoms. Um, and so it can be hard to know, is this COVID? Um, and we definitely want to keep everyone healthy. So what we've been doing is, um, as an institution, we instituted a screening for anyone coming into the clinic, uh, as well as anyone working at the hospital and clinic. So when they walk in, they get a sticker if they've screened. Um, and we've also limited um, visitors so that we can only have one person accompany the patient. Um, and then for the staff, you know, when we've uh, also instituted an employee health testing, which unfortunately had some delays, but is now, I think, more rapidly turning over so that we can know if they are indeed infected uh, so they can, you know, figure out how long they need to stay away. But we've been doing primarily symptom monitoring among the other staff um, as a way to identify and, and isolate if, if people have symptoms. What have you guys been doing? We have not been as proactive with following or tracking symptoms um, in uh, uh, 
staff members or providers in clinic, unfortunately, and are now we have been stuck in a situation where we have had to uh, have staff members uh, who had potential exposure self-quarantine at home and follow their symptoms um, with possible testing uh, if symptoms develop, which has been a real struggle with um, kind of continuing to serve a limited number of patients in our clinic. Fortunately, as I said earlier, we've been relatively proactive about trying to minimize face-to-face -face visits. So it's fortunate that that's happened and that this the start of this has coincided with the spring break in the Chicago area. So the number of providers in clinic and the number of patients scheduled was relatively low compared to our usual flow. Oh, yeah, that is fortuitous. Um, yeah, we only, as you say, if you're home quarantined or um, isolating, you can still provide telemedicine. So we have utilized that. Um, so people have been still able to work remotely and do that, that sort of care. But um, yeah, we do need, you do still have a small cohort of patients that need to be seen. And we're just trying to minimize the, the number of staff that are actually in clinic. Um, and then when we do our telehealth visits, you know, we formerly were in a big room where we would all be able to talk and, and discuss patient care, especially for the um, attendings supervising our uh, resident and fellows clinic. Um, but now we've had to do that also from a distance, um, which has its own challenges. Um, but we have just been doing um, phone calls and um, texting and other methods to communicate um, and uh, avoid being very close to each other during um, discussions of patient care. Yes, this has definitely not just affected patient care, but also teaching for those of us who have the good fortune to be in a situation where we can teach uh, students and house staff. Yes, and we've actually pulled all of our medical students, which I think a lot of others have as well, which is unfortunate. But um, now we're, it is, I'm sure, impacting all of our learners dramatically, um, it's just in that we we can't have the same teaching sessions that we once did, um, especially not in person, but we have moved to Zoom or other um, platforms to, to do teaching remotely um, and discuss the patient care in the clinic. So I'm curious, and not to switch gears, but I suppose I will, um, what guidance have you been giving your outpatients who are calling in uh, with possible symptoms? Um, are you starting them on any empiric therapies? Are you comfortable administering steroids to outpatients with possible COVID-19 infection? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I still struggle with. Um, well, yeah, when the, what we did have some patients in the beginning um, call in with kind of their typical asthma exacerbation symptoms or COPD exacerbation symptoms. Um, no fevers, but, you know, could it be COVID? Possibly. Um, at that time, we didn't really have testing available. Um, so what we've been doing, which, you know, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, um, is kind of in a case-by-case -case basis, some that we know exacerbate we have been giving um, prednisone to. Um, but we've also had um, symptom monitoring and kind of rechecking on those patients because, I know that this virus can worsen abruptly um, over a week or so. And so we want to just make sure that they're doing okay. We also 
course, want to avoid worsening it by giving them steroids, but also not withholding steroids when that would really help them avoid being hospitalized and we want them to stay at the hospital for sure. So uh, I think it's, I think it's tough. Um, so I think it helps if you know your patient and can kind of try as best you can to tease out what their symptoms are. Um, and now that hopefully we'll have more drive-through testing available, um, we can get these patients tested to know for sure if it's safe to give them prednisone. Um, but, but I, we have done, done so we have given prednisone to people with, exacerbations um, when it has been possible they have COVID. Um, so I don't know what the right answer is, but that, that's been our approach. Yeah, um, I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a situation that has to be determined on a case by case basis. I agree with your uh, discomfort with the idea of doing it, but I think sometimes you have to treat the patient in the best way we know how and hope that we get more data on the safety of steroids in this, with this infection. Um, as time goes on. Yeah, and I do know there's conflicting data about that. And some some show fossil. I know they gave in China they gave a lot of patients steroids and you know it's not clear that um they all did worse than I think in Italy similarly. So I don't know that's really definitive if you if it's harmful. Um so so that's kind of been our approach if they definitely seem like it's primarily a COPD or asthma exacerbation. Um we have been giving them prednisone, but with close clinical telephonic follow-up um, in the hopes that we can avoid escalating their care to the hospital setting. Yeah, and I think that's important is having an infrastructure in place to provide that close telephone follow-up and guidance to the patient about what symptoms they develop that should prompt them to call back or even just present straight to the emergency room for urgent management. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've also been telling them ideally to, to warn their, you know, warn the emergency room staff that they, they may be coming in with symptoms. Um, but obviously if they're in a real crisis, that's not possible. But yes, giving them uh, guided care so they, they know and not to wait too long uh, is also important. So as we near the end, I would like to ask both of you um, for some advice for our listeners. Um, is there anything you would recommend doing urgently to prepare for this pandemic as pulmonologists? Dr. Billings? Um, well, I think as best you can, um, getting your staff prepared to to be um, self-isolating and providing care through telemedicine, um, which, you know, I think their Medicare and other insurers are, are rolling out ways to, to make this more feasible to do without being in the hospital. Um, so taking steps to accomplish that um, and also, you know, maintaining social distancing because, you know, we're at very, very high risk for being exposed and getting ill and we don't want to spread it amongst our group and then have um, no no option for, for providers. So I think those are two important things in the outpatient setting. Um, and then ramping up your uh, staff options so you have more backup care so that anticipating staffing shortages, anticipating needs for the surge and a lot of ICU care. Um, and a lot of us have been 
not going on our spring break trips or other planned, uh, you know, conferences. So people are around, which is helpful so that we can all sort of pitch in and step up to to do our part, um, but also keeping safe as possible. Um, and we've also been looking at our allocation of PPE, which uh, I know has been in short supply. So trying to figure out ways to recycle as much as possible and not waste resources, um, which is also extremely um, stressful. Um, and then just thinking more broad termly about, you know, what's your ventilators? How many do you have? What other resources could you use, such as PAP machines um, to help is, as this pandemic progresses? Great, thank you. And Dr. Jablonski, would you like to add to that? I think those are all great points Dr. Billings has made, and I think this this pandemic has just really reinforced the need to be flexible um, in what we are doing and what we can do to help those around us, um, as well as to be forward thinking and prepared, because I think that, unfortunately, things uh, are likely to get worse before this pandemic starts to wane. Um, so taking the steps, as Dr. Billings mentioned, to prepare uh, not just for the outpatient side of things, but how to manage those increased numbers uh, of patients that we'll likely be caring for in the hospital, and above all else, trying to make sure that we take appropriate precautions both for ourselves and for our staff that we work with so that we can all be present to care for patients in the future. And the one other thing I would add is just uh, the self-care that I think is hard to maintain, but, you know, it's, it's incredibly stressful time for everyone, for our families, for the community, um, and just making sure that when you're not in the hospital and when you're not um, caring for these patients, that you take time to to rest and um, get your sleep and, and sort of take care of yourself, because this could be a long haul and we need to, um, you know, we need to maintain our physiological as well as mental health throughout this. So I think that's another important thing that, that we need to pay attention to. Thank you both. Those are extremely important pieces of advice to our listeners. Uh, Dr. Billings and Dr. Jablonski, I just want to say thank you again on behalf of CHEST for taking time out of your busy clinic schedules to share your experiences with us today. Um, and to Dr. Billings' note, I hope both of you take some time to rest and recharge um, and stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Stay healthy, everyone. Good luck. For the latest chest updates, guidelines, expert advice, clinical resources, and more, we invite you to visit our COVID-19 webpage at chestnet.org. Thank you for your service, and please stay well.